You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. Uh, today, I'm very happy to uh, introduce Dr. Montalvo. Uh, she is an innovative nurse leader and fellow of the American Academy of Nursing with an established track record leading national initiatives to advance solutions aimed to decreasing disparity, nursing scholarship, and translating research into practice. She has worked with federally qualified health centers, trade associations, federal agencies, academia, and philanthropy, allowing her to maintain a broader inclusive worldview. At the federal level, her work was recognized by two surgeon generals, one for childhood asthma and second for childhood obesity. Uh, her HRSA Bureau of Primary Healthcare recognized her work during the National Health Disparities Collaborative with a Leadership Award. Dr. Montalvo is a graduate of Columbia University School of Nursing and serves on the Alumni Council. She is an alumna of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Executive Nurse Leadership and serves on their Nurse Trust Board as a director at large. In 2019, she was recognized as Nurse of the Year by the National Hispanic Nurses Association, New York chapter. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Montalvo. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I have, I know it's, it, it's kind of funny when people introduce you because you're, you're thinking, are they really reading somebody else's bio? Uh, I also want to take this opportunity to congratulate you on the launch of the RN uh, Mentor Podcast Series. I'm impressed by the um, breadth of speakers that you have hosted and uh, a personal favorite was your last speaker, Dr. Diana Mason. Uh, and I, I think I'm gonna start from there because um, she actually was a really big influence in my life to return to school and pursue my doctoral education and get my PhD. Um, and if you said, Wanda, would you ever go back to school to uh, pursue a PhD? I would have said, shoot my brains out. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was not something that I could relate to. I didn't quite understand um, the purpose of obtaining a PhD, why research was important. Uh, and I'm glad that I, I did, that I, I was really influenced by the um, uh, IOM Future of Nursing Report when it came out and their recommendations that we needed more nurses to pursue doctoral education. They didn't exactly define uh, a PhD as one of those tracks specifically, but there was a big growth, I think, for the doctoral nurse practitioner programs because of the, those recommendations. But it did influence my decision when that report came out. But I'll, I'll give you some more, I think, humble beginnings. I think it's important as a, as a Latina uh, nurse, I'm Puerto Rican, I was raised by my grandmother, 
uh, I know what it is to live on welfare and food stamps and that that inability to figure out access to higher education was very real in my life. And so I thought that my only pathway was to probably pursue a career as a secretary. I thought that was a, like a hot, hot thing, you know, when I was younger at 18. And I had an opportunity to go to school at uh, Catherine Business School and uh, obtain and graduated as a secretary there. But what it did was create, you know, these other opportunities for me to gain experience in different industries. But finally, I ended up in a job uh, at Lutheran Medical Center in Brooklyn, working with Sunset Park Family Health Center for the medical director as their secretary. And it was actually my first kind of gateway into healthcare. And from a perspective of um, the medical director's office used to get all the patient complaints. Uh, and I was the person that had to document all these complaints and what were the issues from the community access appointments. Um, you know, they didn't have the $5 copay, uh, the long wait for specialty appointments and things like that. So the other thing that it kind of exposed me to were was uh, federal funding and grants. So, her, you know, we used to have to submit the 330 grant for our health center. So. I was, you know, as secretary responsible for typing all this stuff, but it opened up all these other things related to health. And uh, the other thing I was in charge of was payroll. So I was in charge of all the physician payroll in the health center. So I never, um, I kind of look at that as another great opportunity because I never had this kind of hierarchy in a way in my, in my head of physicians because I, I used to do their scheduling and payroll. So a, you know, I developed really good rapport with a lot of the physicians there. And in New York in the 80s, they had a big nursing shortage. Um, and that created a path for me, to go, for me to go back to school. And I started with, um, with a program was called Ladders in Nursing Career. And that was my pathway to go to college. Um, and it was a really great program. They gave us uh, two days off uh, from from our regular, you know, work schedule to be able to attend school, maintain our full salary, uh, with the commitment that you had to work back to the organization that supported you, which I thought was more than fair. I attended Long Island University, and um, that was a, a great school. I, I liked it because it was in a very it was in Brooklyn campus, and I liked it because it was very diverse. Um, you know, there were people that looked like me versus I had an opportunity to really apply to any school. I could have applied to um, any of the other kind of Ivy Leagues because it was a full ride for my, my bachelor's degree. And that's how I kind of stepped into nursing. But because of the experience I had in the health center, and um, when I finished, the you know thing was you had to do inpatient care. And I kept thinking, well, why do I need to do this like inpatient care when I knew that there were all these other you know, issues on the on the outpatient side, on the community side. And I kept thinking I could use those skills in a different way. But lo and behold, you know, the traditional track, and I think nursing needs to move differently, especially I think in this environment, more to public health and community. But I remember being upstairs in the in the in the inpatient side and coming to see some of the patients I recognized from the health center. And they used to, they recognized me because I was always back and forth in, in the clinic. And they would say, well, what are you doing here? And I would say, well, what are you doing here? You know, they would be admitted for things like uncontrolled diabetes, 
uh, foot ulcers, uncontrolled asthma. And I was like, we got to do better. Like, there's no reason for, for, for our patients to be admitted for this type of stuff. And uh, one of the perks of having been the secretary to the medical director was that I was able to go downstairs to leadership and speak to the um, executive director and the medical director and said, I don't know how you can figure this out, but please bring me back down to the health center. I said, we need to develop, you know, programs that can help us do more better care coordination, more chronic disease management for our patients and started, you know, sharing with them stories of the patients I knew that were health center patients. And luckily they were more than happy to, you know, bring me back down to the health center and I just stayed, you know, it was just a great, um, great experience. I started developing programs. Um, and that was actually one of the first big um, opportunities was uh, working on a big project with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Robert Wood Johnson. And um, at that time, they were testing the concept of the chronic care model. And Puget Sound, and they were trying to see, does this model work in underserved communities? Would this model work in a health center? And our health center was selected as one of five to test it. And I'll never forget the first big meeting. It was a huge meeting with all these major players with Kaiser and Mayo and Geyser, Geisinger. And I was like, what the hell are we doing in here? You know, all these big systems. Uh, and it was a team uh, with the physician, nurse, you know, um, administration, we went. And I remember seeing the image of the chronic care model. And I said, oh, shoot, this really makes sense. They had all the components that I kind of understood from community and how we can work um, and use data, proactively identify a population, really look at, you know, key measures for improving um, patient outcomes and then looking at our own systems and where were we kind of failing, you know, our patients, where were the, you know, things where we weren't communicating or proactively following up. Um, when was the last time a pa patient with diabetes had a, you know, hemoglobin A1C or a foot check or an eye exam? And you would speak to the to the, the providers and the, our, our teams and they would say, oh, yes, I do this all the time. And then you look at the data and you realize, uh, yeah, no, you haven't done it, you know, for X number of patients in your panel. And that kind of, you know, I think opened the pathway for me to get into um, looking more into systems improvement, um, looking at what, how can we leverage um, team building, collaboration, uh, and data and innovation. And that was a great experience um, for me. And, and it opened up the other thing that it really helpful was that it opened up how all the systems interconnect. So how policy impacts our work, our, our roles and responsibilities as clinicians, how, you know, the lack of um, clinical information kind of system design and technology can be barriers into doing real population-based care. And that was a great um, opportunity. Then you fast forward and then out of that work, that's when the Bureau of Primary Healthcare uh, tapped me and asked if I would be willing to be the Northeast Cluster Director uh, for the National Health Disparities. The, we, we as five health centers demonstrated that the model did work, that it was something that was applicable to our setting and um, 
they they decided to fund us and that's when the big national health disparities collaborative started and it was really awesome because we worked with fairly qualified health centers all over the country um, i worked with health centers from maine to west virginia and puerto rico i visited so many places across the country and and so many incredible clinicians and leaders and communities and each community was slightly different each one had its own flavor um, they had policies that either facilitated or cre created barriers to practice um, and reimbursement issues. So it was really uh, an eye opener as to how our policies can really um, negatively impact our, I think, vision for providing the best care. And more frustrating than anything was that I, the population that we specifically work with were vulnerable patients um, that ha that were underinsured and had no other options, right? It was like we were the, the the safety net provider for a lot of them, and that was an incredible experience to kind of again learn to navigate all those different relationships um, and be able to advocate for the role of nursing in that, and also how to work collaboratively with mental health, the dental, our specialty providers. Um, as nurses and be able to inform system redesign. And that was early on. I mean, when I think about, you know, where those things stay consistent, we might call them different things, but I think the ingredients, uh, it's like, you know, refer to something in Spanish. It's like a sazón para cocinar. You know, it's like you use one ingredient of uh, adobo and all those things together is what gives you a good, you know, steak at the end. And in some ways, all those ingredients kind of stay consistent with, I think how we have to look at uh, system redesign and patient engagement and all the interconnectedness of everything to improve patient outcomes. Uh, Dr. Montala, real quick, just because you have such this uh, incredible background and experience with uh, with with uh, underserved populations. Um, now, what you know, I don't want to say what are we doing wrong. What are we doing right, and what are we doing wrong? Because some of the issues you brought up. Uh, you know, that you were dealing with uh, so many years ago, we're still dealing with yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, I, but I hear, you know, and then you go back, you know, even, you know, before, uh, you know, you and I were even born, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those issues existed. We keep like seem to be going back mm -hmm. uh, and saying, we know what's wrong. We know what evidence shows us. We mm -hmm. know how to make it right, but we're just not doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I'm going to start with just overall, um, you know, access to care and can, and our health insurance system is a big issue. Uh, right now, if you think about it, my coverage is connected to my employer. Right. Right. That makes no sense. If you're, if you're, if you transition to a new job, you have to, you know, your, your coverage is impacted and it makes it a very unequitable uneven platform for people. And I, I always remember that, you know, just because I had a Medicaid card didn't mean I had access, right? I didn't quite, it, it was like the best analogy I can give you, it, the unfairness of it is, uh, I remember this as a kid on, on Medicaid. Yes, I can see the optometrist and get my eyes checked. But when it came to, you know, what what glasses I could I can get for myself, they were the, the, the glasses that a teenager never wants to wear. Right? So I, was, <laughs> I was never going to be able to get the nicer, you know, frames 
right. that were on the other side of, 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 the, of the glass. And I think that that's how our healthcare system is set up, that, you know, you have people that um, don't have the same access. And until people have the same platform of access, we're going to continue to have this un- unequitable um, differentiation of outcomes. And it's crazy um, I think we need to be very transparent in our on what we're charging patients. Um, what am I getting for the fees that I'm being asked to pay? And it, it, it comes down to policy. We need uh, you know healthcare for all, and it needs to be um, definitely more equitable and inclusive. And it shouldn't be tied to your employment status uh, right. because I think it's a it's 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 well look at now right we have this whole pandemic and people getting laid off, and it's crazy. It kind of really highlights why the, the, the model doesn't quite work for us um, as compared to other countries. And there's the opportunity is there, and the will is really political will and courage uh, to change it. And I do also think that brick and mortar is going to be challenged in the current environment. So, you know, we, we shift it more to uh, inclusion of telehealth and telemedicine because it were you know, because of what happened and get ready. You know, I think that the, the time is right to really have real open discussions. The other is public health in general, right? Public health had kept decimating public health, not enough sufficient um, support and funding for public health. Definitely. And again, the policies. Um, and I think our, our, local, our local representatives in Congress and, and Senate and everything else have a really important role and that's why I think the next election for us is going to be critical because everybody's life has been impacted um, by this pandemic. And we need to move forward and use this momentum to um, change the conversation. So do, do you think, again, going back to the, uh, you know, where, where, where the uh, where is the blockage in moving forward with this? Do you think it's I don't think it's really the people, even though I hear there's some resistance with people saying, why am I paying for other people's health insurance, that type of thing. Uh, do you think the insurance companies and for-profit organizations have are, are the ones that are really pushing for things like, for uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act and things like that to go away? Or do you think it's really people? No, I think it's a, they have the funds to pay for lobbyists to advocate for those things to say the same, right? Right. Um, And so that's, that's a big, a big component of it. Uh, You know, if you think about it, you know, if you have all these different, what New York, I remember has like 20 or 30 probably different insurance companies, you're replicating each one of those models over and over again, right? They have a leadership team, they have staff, they're processing, um, you know, claims, on the frontline provider side, I don't envy private practices um, or smaller systems that have all these different ways of having to submit their claims, all the codes. It is so convoluted and complex um, that I think all those that, that administrative overhead is just crazy. And if we flattened it out and try to make it more equitable, but yeah, they have the funds to lobby um, and they they want to keep their, their slice of the pie. And that's all part of the the competition for you know lives or uh you know areas that they want to cover and it makes it really really complex yeah i agree i agree um so thank you sorry so i didn't mean to take you away from your uh, <laughs> career but you. But you it's all connected it's all yeah. connected because i think we as nurses 
play an important role to um, voice these concerns, advocate, um, you know, bring our expertise to the discussion and being seen as experts uh, to be able to inform strategy of things to be, to move forward. Oftentimes, and Diana Mason, Dr. Mason spoke about this in her podcast, that nurses are, are often overlooked as having, you know, expertise or sufficient knowledge uh, to inform some of this. Or they're not, they're not, they're not people that come to mind. At least as a profession, usually people default to the physician. Um, but most people don't quite understand the level of experience <laughs> training that nurses go through in order to um, get to where they are. And we're a really incredible resource. I think that because we're in the front line, and oftentimes, and by that I mean across the spectrum, think about school, school sites, think about, you know, our health center systems, think about, you know, inpatient, long-term care, home care, uh, we're all over. And so we have this knowledge that we can bring to the, to the discussion board. Right. Uh, which, which, you know, uh, which was a really a, a, an example that came up on uh, social media about in the last week with a certain physician that will go unnamed, uh, calling out, uh, <laughs> calling out an article of why they tapped into a nurse uh, for right. talking about skincare versus yep. uh dermatologist right. uh, which was a whole nother thing which I, I went on a rant on but that's beside the point um, but, but it but is I, relevant right it's like but, you know right. we we we're stronger when we're col- when we are work collaboratively with um our other interprofessional opportunities uh but oftentimes i think journalists benefit if they build more relationships with nurses absolutely uh, and, and can gain additional insight and other perspectives uh, into what the issues are. Uh, and I think a lot of it does have to what I think we, I've, we've talked about and uh, I've, you know, other individuals have brought up is the fact that I, I don't think, uh, I think people look at nursing in one particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see us in scrubs and at bedside, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is part of our profession, but it, it's not encompassing of all, the, all of our profession. No. Uh, so I think that's that's where uh, we need to do more work in in getting the word out that hey look we're we're expert in so many different we have expertise in so many different fields mm-hmm. and you know I have my expertise in my area you have your expertise in your area mm-hmm. uh, we all don't have expertise in everything but we mm-hmm. there are uh, large numbers of us that have expertise in specific areas so right. um, I definitely agree with you. And, you know, it it does bring into, for me, the different opportunities that I have been given and being able to learn from these different um, areas, right? So having worked in a federally qualified health center will always be kind of, I think, a foundation to how I look at the world, right? Because of the experience of connecting with the community for those that had resources, those that didn't, those that had... um, you know, active involvement with their local representatives and those that didn't, and being able to advocate for the the needs of that community. And then you have, you know, trade associations that kind of move it up another level to representing the membership, the primary care associations, or the National Association of Community Health Centers that represent the bigger um, shebang, I think, of 
FQHCs across the country and the policy issues. And then there's that other, you know, component in in, in, in my career and opportunity where I've worked in philanthropy, which has also kind of opened the lens to where nurses can inform or help advocate for funding or be able to say, you know, <laughs> that's a great that's a great proposal, but that's not how the world really works, right? Being able to have that experience to be able to inform strategy is just as important to being able to advance mission um, and goals for for the improved outcomes and I think improved processes or, you know, informing policy that is supported by research. And one of the things that I think for me that also, you know, influenced me to go back and pursue my uh, PhD was being somewhat frustrated by saying that certain, certain strategies wouldn't work in the community or for our patients, but unable to bring the research to the discussion. I didn't have that skill set. And that was frustrating because when you would be at the table with, you know, key decision makers, they would kind of defer to the academics around the table. And I was like, was the last time they went down the block and got a slice of pizza and spoke to anybody in a bodega? I was like, they haven't been in the community. They're so out of touch with some of the things they would say. Uh, The other would be like, uh, you know, coming in, swooping in, wanting to work with with us, and then swooping back out because they got the patients they wanted for their research. We never heard back what happened, you know, what type of impact resulted because of our participation. So those things were really frustrating. And so when the IOM report came out and I, I, Diana Mason, again, is the person who kept saying every time she would meet with me, when are you going back to school? When are you gonna get your PhD? Um, and she would, you know, lay out why it was important for me to obtain a PhD. And finally, you know, I decided to, to go. And I will say that it was because of mentors like her um, and mentors um, that I had through the Robert Wood Johnson Executive Nurse Fellowship Program and peer mentors I spoke into my life that said, there's another pathway. There's, there's another opportunity for you to grow and to be a change agent and to continue to inform and be a voice for these issues. And uh, then that did actually influence me into looking at mentoring um, and what was the impact of mentoring. And because I had been in these different um, platforms and different settings, I kept thinking, well, how the hell do you learn to navigate the politics? Because each one of these organizations are run differently, right? You know, A health center runs differently from a hospital system, from a trade association, from academia and philanthropy. And so it did it did start me to think through mentoring. And um, Dr. County Vance was one of the I think one of the people in the forefront that kind of started really doing research and talking about mentoring and nursing. And I I learned a lot from from the work um, and from that research in the sense that I learned that there's different types of mentors in our life. And there's different phases of mentoring in our life. And that you can have informal mentoring relationships that can be equally or more valuable than those formal, quote unquote, assigned mentor uh, relationships that sometimes we're given. And what the value um, brings to a person that's in their early career to figure out, is this the right mentor for me? you know, looking at what your own level of expertise is, you know, there's the, I think in some ways that the nurse that can be a novice 
that's coming in and benefiting from a, a, a mentoring relationship. But then there is people that, you know, at doctoral level education, you're coming in already kind of seasoned with a lot of experience. So you're more at a, you know, definitely expert level. And so the, the mentoring you need at that stage of your professional career is somewhat different. And so from a, a opportunity of what I thought were differences in those mentoring relationships were what were some of the things that that mentor was willing to do for you um, and the mutual benefit that there was in the relationship. So I thought about, you know, what is the interpersonal relationship and how is it that the mentor is helping me with problem solving? Um, how is it that what is the approach to the, the work that we're learning from each other? How are they pushing my, you know, um, innovative thinking? But I think one of the big uh, lessons learned from observing Dr. Mason as a role model, she was probably one of the first mentors that really modeled um, developing social like capital and, and purposefully opening your circle to new groups of people that you know you on your own would never get invited to. Um, and those social circles um, are very different from, I think, uh, a regular uh, informal mentoring. It's a little bit more, I think, purposeful to bring someone up, to move someone forward, and to be that person's advocate is, I think, a really high-value mentoring opportunity for people. And so when you're, when you're thinking about what type of mentor do I want in my life, I often think about, you know, you should really kind of observe uh, the person in action, so to speak, you know, how they're, how do they handle tough situations? How do they uh, oversee a meeting? Uh, what, what is the thought of the staff of that person? Uh, and, and that mentoring has different phases, right? It's like, there's an initial phase where you're just kind of, uh, I call it like the, the, the blind date, you know, you're kind of checking each other out. It might take, you know, a couple of one or two meetings before you kind of say, well, this is actually a good you know, match for for me, and and then being able to kind of cultivate that relationship and and move into something where there's a good kind of give and take. I do recommend that people think through what is it that they would like to um, obtain from that mentoring relationship. If they're they could think about kind of creating a contract and formally looking at you know what progress am I making, um, and and that there is a separation phase. I think you you then later on and you you. Def you redefine that relationship because you become peers. It shouldn't be that you're forever seeing yourself as uh, a protege of this other person, but that you then, I think, move up to become um, a good mutual peer. And then it's, I think, our responsibility to help bring up the next person. That part of our growing is to um, pay it forward. And I think that's one of the real big benefits that I see in our, our nurse trust group um, with all these great nurses that, you know, finished through the Robert Wood Johnson Executive Nurse Program. And how are we positioned now to pay forward and to help develop other nurses? Uh, I, I, I will say that I think what I also find interesting is um, how a mentor can help you navigate the organizational politics by, you know, giving you feedback on helping you to be a little bit more socially astute to what's going on. Um, helping us to expand our, our network has to be purposeful and that, you know, to develop your, your political skill, you need to be 
um, I think, attuned to what's going on and purposefully try to influence uh, the outcome. And so through that mentoring, I think what with feedback, what we learn is um, how do you navigate those relationships? How do you develop your emotional intelligence in some of these situations? How to really you know, gain some career development and developing strategies to learn how to navigate those things. But people that really benefited a lot were people that I think in some ways were able to attain them a good friendship and respect for that that mentor. And I think those are the relationships that lasted a long time because they may have more shared uh, styles, whether it was their personalities or being able to kind of have uh, problem solving skills that they shared or communication style or how they approached work uh, were, were I think of high benefit to people. So w- when you think of mentoring, I would also say have more than one. Don't always have everybody be a mentor within nursing. Think outside the box. Some of the best mentors have been people that have been in my in my in my life for a short period, touched my life for a couple of you know like a year, but they stay with me forever. And uh, I'm also very thankful to the white ally males that open pathways for me. I know what it is to have someone totally block you 100% from being able to move forward. Uh, you know, to experiences where I had my my publications blocked, um, to then having other people purposefully open the door and advocate for you. And those are things that you take for you forever. And I think it's time for us to think through it, especially now in this space, how do we now then advocate for our emerging nurse leaders, um, given the, the, the platform, the things that are going on with Black Lives Matter, um, and, you know, talking about the the racism and what it's like to be a minority in this space is not an easy space to be in. So I'm thankful for people that have been able to step up and, and work side by side with us right now. That's great. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, a couple of things that you touched on, the informal mentoring uh, definitely speaks to me because I feel uh, most of the formal mentorships that I've had within nursing haven't worked out for me. Uh, it's usually been through uh, individuals that I have met uh, for periods of time or through different uh, projects. Uh, I consider you a mentor. You and I have known each other for a few years now, and I definitely consider you as one of those individuals that have definitely, you mentioned opening doors up. Uh, you. You've definitely opened uh, several doors for me uh, just through uh, collaborations that we've had. Uh, and I appreciate that. The other thing for me that you that I that I want to reemphasize on what you said was having mentors outside of the world of nursing, mm-hmm. um, because, like I said again, uh, people sort of get tunnel vision as mm-hmm. to what nursing does or who mm-hmm. can be a mentor. Mm-hmm. So I think looking at individuals that are not nursing but have skill sets mm-hmm. uh, that you should have in your you know in your toolbox. Uh, I think it's always helpful. And you know what? What I've learned over the years is that they love to have a nurse to mentor. So, we, you know, you, if you connect with business leaders um, and people in other industries, they're fascinated by us just as we are fascinated <laughs> by them, you know. And, and they really kind of uh, appreciate the lens that sometimes we use. Um, and they, we also educate them about what nursing brings to the table, things that they didn't know before. But definitely, I think working with people in other industries has always been really cool. Um, 
and I've had people in all different places that I really appreciate and coaches. Uh, the other thing I would say that sometimes, you know, it's, it's great to have a coach speak into your life as well. You know, I think that if you're a nurse at a certain uh, time in your career where you're feeling a little stuck, invest in yourself. And if you have to pay for a coach for a couple of sessions, it's an investment in yourself and in your future, but it's also an investment for, think about it for your family, right? right. Because as you move forward in your career, you know, you're, you, you're able to be probably in a better position as a provider or a partner to, you know, have that dream beach house vacation house somewhere, you know, it's, it, it, let's be, let's be real. There's a benefit to uh, also advancing ourselves as professionals. I, de I definitely agree. Um, um, so um, I, I can't emphasize enough how much uh, mentoring and hence the podcast. The podcast was really, if anybody's listened to my first podcast with me talking by myself, um, uh, it was really it was really one of the reasons I put this together is so I have opportunities to do one on ones with nurse leaders. <laughs> this way it doesn't seem weird that I just call people up. Can we talk for an hour? Uh, so. Uh, it, it, a little bit self-serving also in, 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 a, bit, in a way. I, um, I, I kind of enjoy listening to the stories of, of people's, you know, kind of um, career trajectories, right? And right. I, I'm praying that it, it provides hope for those that have a vision for their life not to give up. Uh, you know, it's you get hard knocks, you fall. And uh, I've always lived with the, for my own personal thing is, you know, uh, jump in the net will catch you. Uh, I, I often say, don't, I, I can't predict the landing. You know, sometimes you land on your feet, sometimes you land on your butt. Uh, but you took the leap and uh, you, you learn from that experience. You, you take your leadership uh, skills with you. You take your social network with you. Uh, don't let anyone else define who you are. And um, you just continue to move forward because if you have a vision and purpose in your life, then you need to kind of continue to move forward with that. Because as a change agent, you know for a fact that you're um, making a positive impact and that you're you're really coming from a good place. You're, you're being authentic to who you are. You want to be authentic for to the people you touch because that's what they remember. They remember, they remember that more than they remember, I think, a lot of other things. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, now you, you've had um, you've been in leadership positions. So I, I, you know, from the sound of it and reading your bio, uh, you've been in leadership positions most of your career, mm -hmm. um, and you've definitely from the beginning sounds like you had. Um, you did you know you were going to uh, have a certain pathway? Um, other than you know having to be talked into your PhD program. Uh, by the way, the, the the IOM report also pushed me towards my PhD program. We, have, we, do, have, we do have that in common. Uh, that was the nudge I needed, uh, and my wife saying you can go for your PhD. Yeah. Um, but um, how did you how did you like navigate uh, you know being in leadership roles or getting into leadership roles? Um, you know, I mean, you were you were uh, you were in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, Executive Nurse uh, Fellowship Program. Um, you're now a director at large uh, for the Nurse Trust. Um, how do you how do you navigate that other than 
you know, definitely networking has a little bit to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, people trust your work and the mm-hmm. work that you've done. How do you get there? Uh, I definitely think I stand um, on the work product. Uh, the work product, I think, of what you do is, is, is important. So, you know, a lot of the different programming that I've done has, has been really good and successful. But I think my motivation has always been thinking about who am I doing it for? Um, and I'm always doing it for uh, the first image that always comes to my mind is, you know, mi, mi abuelita, my grandmother. Uh, she didn't speak English. Uh, she didn't. Uh, she she didn't know how to read and write, and she's probably one of the most vulnerable when I think about people that need help. And so, a lot of the work, at least my passion or drive underneath, is to make sure that I'm advocating for the right thing. Um, and also, you know, I definitely have a sense of the underdog uh, being a voice for that. It's definitely, the work product. So, always looking at. You know, how is this going to benefit people? Is it going to make a positive difference? Am I adding, um, you know, value to the work that that I'm trying to move forward? And those things always stay foundational. And if you if you move on, does that work? Is that work still respected? Um, Mm. and, And I think in some ways, those are things that I can stand by. And when I've moved on to other things, the the work or the work product is appreciated. So definitely, I think that's part of it. I think people do observe whether you're somebody who is a good talker or do you really deliver? And so for me, being able to deliver on some of the um, work product is an important component and ability to work collaboratively with other people to see where's the win-win in this. Clearly, yes, that there's people that then, you know, tap you for certain opportunities. One of the things that I will really definitely highlight from a from a kind of gender perspective that I think is important for nurses is that, um, especially even as a minority, that when a person would tap me for something, my first underlying gut instinct is to say, am I ready for this? And I'm really, really questioned, can I say yes to this opportunity? And then the other part of me is that we always over-prepare and always think we need one more thing as women. Men don't do that. Men actually came out of my research. Men are more than happy to leverage their network and say yes more more rapidly and quickly than women do. And I think for nurses and, and minority women especially, take the leap and say yes. You know, you may not have all the answers, but that's when you leverage your social network. And that's when you leverage your peer mentors and other mentors to help fill in these gaps you know you have. But if you're if they're tapping you, it's because you demonstrated something. You have a an intellectual um, uh, benefit or power or contribution to make. That's why they're tapping you. So go for it. You know what's the worst that can happen? You get unhired. <laughs> <laughs> you get unhired, and you learn from it. And you just move forward. Um, you just kind of learn learn from it and you move forward. And so I think in all of the the opportunity, I think the biggest, scariest for me was when I was tapped for the the HRSA, Bureau of Primary Health Care, um, for Northeast Cluster Director, because that was a huge leap. It was really, really scary. 
Um, I went from having a straight, you know, job to working remote and doing and basically living out of a suitcase for like seven years. But I would never trade that away because I met so many incredible people across the country um, that it always kind of gives me hope that I know that they're out there working hard. I know that there are people out there that have that um, shared value and want to have really good patient outcomes. So it keeps me motivated. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Um, now you, you, men- you mentioned uh, collaborative work, and I, I don't want to uh, want to end our podcast without talking about uh, at least one more thing. Um, you are uh, you are uh, the co-creator and organizer of Nursing Mutual Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I don't want to say too much about it. I want you to talk about it. How did, <laughs> how did that come about? Because I enjoyed it. I made it an assignment for my kids, not for my kids, for my <laughs> for my students. Uh, how, how did that come about? I mean, you you know, I will refer people to one of your earlier podcasts with uh, Dr. Rachel Walker and Dr. Anna Velez, where they kind of gave the groundwork for nursing mutual aid. But it was, you know, basically. Uh, Dr. Rachel Walker's, you know, put out this Twitter um, question, you know, about there was a need for helping to address the gaps that we had for all these conferences that were canceled and trying to create a virtual space, uh, a platform to share knowledge and experiences, to amplify nursing scholarship, um, to be inclusive, which I thought was really great. Uh, of being able to help create a space where nurses that I think have been marginalized for a long time had a space to share. And so we launched this Nursing Mutual Aid um, as 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 a Twitter conference on April 30th. And we have had such an incredible uh, success with it that we're still kind of going through the the, the data and do a, a write-up, but we reached on the day that it was launched, you know, we had 75 speakers that ran um, every 10 minutes to showcase their particular topic of expertise. We had over uh, 329 people participate that day. We had international presenters. And I think at the top of what we were able to accomplish, we had over, I think, um, 11 million impressions um, wow. overall, and so we reached all these all these different people. And I think what what for me stuck out were the conversations that took place and the experts that and and lived experiences that people were able to share. And a big takeaway for me was, you know, these are these are topics I never regularly hear at a conference. Very true. And why is that? And, and I kept, and it really bothered me. Um, and so, you know, you know, discussions of whistleblowing, um, looking at racialized disparities um, among like CRNA programs for black, Hispanic and Native American communities. Um, what, what, how, what's the impact of COVID? At that time was early on, right? On race and equity. And now it's more and more in, 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 in part of the conversation. Um, you know, uh, Melanie Rogers is one that stands out, right? Because as someone who's worked in community health and public health, you know, you want us to do evidence-based practice, but I can't get access to evidence-based journals. Right. 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 It's really frustrating. Um, definitely talking about uh, design justice and what does that mean? Um, looking at 
disaster nursing and, you know, what is our response to that gag orders? A lot of the nurses had, you know, gag orders placed on them. And, you know, how how can you be radical and remain professional? Uh, anytime you, you, you bring up an issue, people basically want you to, you know, be quiet about it. And so this created for us a space for people to share um, their experience and knowledge and talk about issues that are almost never spoken about. And I kept thinking to myself, how can I be at this stage of my career? And these discussions never took place when I was a student. And I see it as really unfair. And, right. and so um, we've come together to kind of continue to uh, figure out, you know, the, this, this mutual aid, providing a platform for nurses to share. We actually have a, uh, a session coming up this Friday. It's called Fire and Flood to talk about uh, climate change. Um, it's a documentary that's a, it's going to be done bilingual. And what Twitter pro- provided us is an open access platform for people to connect. So I think that people that are, and I'm going to say this really, really strongly, and anybody that was a, a, that's a scholar and knows me knows I say this all the time, nurses need to get on social media. Um, you need to be able to expand your voice, amplify what you're doing. Um, I get a shout out to Marion Leary that leads the uh, Amplify Nursing as well, her, her podcast, that we have to get into these social spaces. Right. I have connected with incredible, talented people that have such a skill set that I would technically probably never meet if I was just in a regular um, straight job and never was on social media. I know for a fact I would never meet them. Uh, And so it it opens up a door for me to meet uh, and continue to embrace lifelong learning. I think that's really crucial. Uh, And so these spaces like LinkedIn and Twitter and, and gives us access to people that have really great content expertise and build relationships and learn new things every day. I'm learning something new every single day. Um, and I'm very appreciative for that. And that's one of the, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, the Twitter conference that happened. Uh, you know, I, I was happy, you know, uh, nothing against the nurses who research, uh, you know, uh, foot care and diabetes and cardiac issues, uh, that's definitely important, but it was nice to see a variety of things mm-hmm. that I normally do not see at conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that was, uh, and, and that kind of actually kind of speaks to a little bit about our conferences that how, 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 what are we doing uh, or what are we doing wrong that we're not seeing these things at our conferences? Because uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't go to just one, I go to a variety, uh, you know, not all at, in the same year, but I do go to a variety. And the fact that we, I haven't seen many of those topics is a little bit concerning. Yeah. Um, that, that but it speaks to the structure, right? When you talk about, uh, you know, um, structural racism or gatekeepers, um, what do they think, what that they perceive as something that it's, you know, okay right. to, to speak about and what makes people uncomfortable. And you won't hear some of this. And I agree with you. I thought it was incredible we have um for those that are interested if you visit our nursing mutual aid site we have the the full um pdf there with all the speakers that that spoke throughout that day and their twitter handles so if you wanted to kind of connect with people that have these other varied expertise they're they're there it's posted open access and Uh, so is the whole conference it's all online 
and I, and I have that on a previous podcast, um, those links, but I will definitely put it, put those links in the, in, in the, on the website with your podcast as well. So people can easily, uh, our listeners can easily access it. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, uh, we're almost out of time. I want to give you an opportunity if you want to share anything else about your incredible career, the work that you're doing, uh, anything else that you want to share with us. Uh, I think what I'm really working on now is putting forth my talent, uh, skills, and, and treasure to things that I, I believe are moving the needle and to support moving work forward has been really, I think, rewarding. So working on nursing mutual aid has been awesome. Connecting with, you know, nurseology and radical nursing has been really great. Um, and because they're giving a, they're, they're creating a pathway, I think, for the emerging nurse leader that's coming up. Our Gen Z generation is not going to put up with the BS that the baby boomers did years ago. They're not. And so they will find a way to amplify their voice. And so I think from my kind of perspective is where is the opportunity for me to support other nurses um, and to move forward and inform, you know, work that I think is important. A space that I'm kind of interested in dipping my toe in is um, a little bit more in that bridge between the philanthropy and technology and um, all this like artificial intelligence and I'm not an expert in technically, right? But I am concerned about the the discussion that are, that's being had and who owns my data um, and how is it being used and who are we leaving behind? Because an app, everything can't be an app. <laughs> everything can't be an app. If sure. I see one more app for something, it's just it, it just can't. So uh, I think that there's a space and an opportunity, I think, for philanthropy to play a role but oftentimes they may not think about a nurse as someone that, that probably can add value to the strategic thinking um, in, the, in these arenas. Uh, I think the other would be for my Latinx um, Hispanic nurses to not give up, to come together in solidarity, to build bridges um, with other nurses that have these kind of similar experiences because we can peer support each other and mentor each other through transition. Um, and that, you know, I, I think I, I have this that, you know, if you think you're too small to make a change, try going to bed with a mosquito. Uh, you know, <laughs> never think you cannot, you're, you're, you're insignificant in any way. Uh, be brave, have um, hairy, audacious goals and um, continue to grow. If I learned something new today that I didn't know to yesterday, then I'm moving forward and I'm creating a path. And being able to share that with other people is, is I think, uh, really important to me. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I, I'm grateful for ha- for having known you and having you thank in you. my life. So I appreciate uh, you sharing your story uh, and your expertise. Um, so thank you again. Um, we have been listening to Dr. Wanda Montalvo. Um, Uh, leadership and mentor extraordinaire. So thank you very much (laughs) and have a great uh, rest of your week. Have a good one. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. 
please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.